The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 4. Now when Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region and shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, O Christ. It's a pivotal story in these early chapters of the larger story. After Jesus hears that his preparer of the way, John the Baptist, had been arrested, an arrest which will not end with his pardon from the outgoing head of state, but rather with his execution at the hands of the state, Jesus then, says Matthew, sets out on the public chapters of the path that he came to walk, a path which, of course, would not end with his pardon by either church or state, but rather his public execution, initiated and carried out by the collusion of church and state, an execution which, though he was the only one who realized this at the time, an execution which would be for the pardon of sinners including even those sinners who'd wanted nothing to do with the thought of a pardon for him. Let's hit pause here for a second for a side dish of theology. I know some of you don't like theology. Just open wide. A couple teaspoons might do you good. Luther felt there were two approaches to doing theology, both espoused by people who called themselves Christian only one of them actually Christian. He referred to them as the theology of glory and a theology of the cross. Theology of glory is about humans striving after things like glory and power and riches and greatness and wisdom. And when they attain them, at least attain them is in the eyes of the world and as defined by the world, claiming that their great worldly power and riches and greatness and wisdom are proof of how righteously great they are 
and how greatly pleasing they are to God. That theology of the cross is something I bring up because it's been on the rise in this country for a few years now, albeit under a different name. Of late, it's referred to as prosperity gospel. Paula White, a leading prosperity gospel proponent who was invited by our president to pray at his inauguration, has taken things to the level of saying that if you are financially poor, if you are financially poor, it is a sign that your faith is weak. Because God's desire absolutely for everyone who's financially, faithfully strong is to be financially rich. She also says that one very good way for you to prove that you are faithful is by making a faithful and generous contribution to her ministry, which of course is obviously blessed by God because she is so faithful and therefore so pleasing to God that she lives in a multi-million dollar home in Florida and has a fleet of multi-million dollar jets to take her to places like some of her other multi-million dollar homes, including her $3.5 million condo in Trump Tower. Luther preached not a theology of glory, but a theology of the cross, reminding us all that all of our achievements are rubbish in terms of achieving righteousness in the eyes of God. And reminding us, too, that the greatness Jesus was great with was greatness that was willing to be penniless and homeless and thrown out like rubbish not for the sake of his glorification by the world, but rather for the sake of his love for the world. The whole world, not just one nation in it. Back to our story. It is after Jesus hears that John has been arrested that he publicly sets out on his public ministry's path by going to what would be for the next three years essentially his home base for mission and ministry, which was a little village called Kephar Nahum, village of Nahum, Capernaum, we often say now, a village on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, a location which made possible its major industry, fishing. And when he got there, says Matthew 4, 18 following, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. And he went from there, and he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in the boat with the father Zebedee, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately, they left their boat and their father and followed him. Let's start with a question Matthew doesn't answer, though we sure wish he would. Wait, seriously? He walks up to them, says, come along, I've got a bit of a career change in mind for you, and boom, immediately, it's the word Matthew uses twice, boom, they get up and go, leaving everything, leaving everyone behind. Well, apparently... I mean, some, reading John alongside of Matthew, say that maybe it wasn't 
Maybe it wasn't quite that sudden. Maybe this wasn't a completely cold call. Maybe Jesus, yeah, you could even see this possibly in Matthew. Jesus had maybe been in the area sowing some seeds for a while before the official ask that we read about here in Matthew. But even if that's so, come follow me. He walks up one day and says, and they immediately get up and do precisely that. Incredible. So what do you think? Are we supposed to be incredible? Like that? Are you? I mean, you've been hanging around quite a while. Surely Jesus has been sowing seeds in there. Is today the day he asks you to come, to follow him, to give up everything and everyone in the process? Three observations. Then we'll call it a sermon. Observation number one. Jesus calls all of us to follow him. All of us without exception. Which means all of us including you. But he does not call all of us to follow him on the same path. I can think of times, for example, when I've seen someone faithfully and accurately, in my opinion, come to discern that they were called to follow Jesus not by giving up their families and going to work as a missionary in the church, but rather by giving up their unhealthy relationship with work and going home to their families. Jesus calls all of us to follow him without exception, but he does not call all of us to follow him on the very same path. Observation number two, which is related to observation number one, but getting at it from Luther's direction and with Luther's vocabulary, which include observing that all of us, which means all of us, including you, have a Christian vocation. Luther talked a lot about our vocation or our calling. It's a calling you were called to in your baptism. And that calling that is your calling, Luther said, every single time is a holy and sacred thing. But that doesn't mean, Luther said, that everybody is called to be priests and nuns. Some of us, Luther said, are called to the holy calling of doing whatever it is we do, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, at work or at home, loving God, loving our neighbor, and doing our part to provide and care for the needs of the world. A mother nursing her child, Luther observed, or a father changing the diaper of a child, he said, is every bit as holy and in some ways can be even more so than a nun or a monk meditating alone behind the closed doors and walls of a monastery. A Christian shoemaker, he said, is not someone who puts crosses on shoes. A Christian shoemaker, Luther said, is first of all someone who makes good shoes because that is part of God's way and God's care for the world being carried out. God himself milks cows, Luther said, through the hands of the dairy farmer whose calling it is to do that. 
All of us have a Christian vocation, said Luther, but that doesn't mean that all of us are called to leave home and family to be priests, nuns, or missionaries in foreign lands. For some of us are called to the holy calling of doing whatever it is in the world we do every day of the week, at home or at work or at school, loving God, loving our neighbor, and doing our part to care for the needs of God's world. Jack Fortin, after I was at Luther Seminary, um, used to teach at Luther on the topic of vocation, and he, I, I wasn't there so I had to read the book, he, uh, he used to use imagery from this chapter in Matthew. The vocation of some Christians, he said, is to be fishers of people, for sure. But there are other people whose Christian calling is to be fishers of fish. Which, let's be clear, was not Jack Fortin's way of blessing those who say that they don't come to church on Sunday before because they feel so close to God at the lake. It was rather an encouragement to people to realize that being faithful and Christian and mission-driven is not only for those who offer the food of the word for the needs of people's souls, faithfulness, following Jesus can be every bit as much about offering food food and many other things too for the needs of people. I thought Dan Colander gave just a great example of that during adult forum last week. If you were there, he told us about a friend of his, I think it was a member of his first parish, that may not be true, but whose professional vocation had been in the area of entrepreneurial development. He stopped people, helped people start and sustain small businesses. A few years back, however, he felt called by God to realize how very useful those very same skills could be in organizing and developing a nonprofit called Water to Thrive, which helps isolated villages in Africa have and sustain wells for clean drinking water. Everybody, without exception, is called to follow Jesus, but we aren't all called to follow Jesus in the same way or on the same path. Some are called to preach sermons, some are called to foreign missions, but others are called to change diapers, make shoes, drill wells, or in some cases do whatever it is we do. So that one thing we're able to do is offer financial support to arms of the church or other faithful non-profits like Water to Thrive that do things like providing food or clean water for those who, unlike us, lack such and are dying for relief. Final observation, number three, which again gets a little theological. Sorry, I didn't mean to give you two helpings, but there you go. In talking about and even marveling about Peter and Andrew and James and John following where they followed, walking the path they, they walked, giving what they gave, giving up what they gave up. I mean, they would all give all in the end. 
it's important to remember that we are not talking about the path of salvation. That is to say, what they would do in order to love God so much that they would save themselves, that they would find their way, earn their way to heaven. We're talking here about the path of discipleship. That is to say, what they would do in response to and in relationship with the one who loved them so much, he gave himself, found his way all the way from heaven to them and to a cross to be their salvation. For they and we are saved by grace, not by anything we do, period. Jesus loves you with love so loving that no mess you have ever made could ever make him love you one bit less. No mess you will ever, ever possibly make could make him love you one bit less than he already does. Just as no good and righteous thing you have ever done or could ever possibly do will ever possibly make him love you any more than he already does because he already loves you with perfect love and perfect by definition can't be improved upon. And it is a gift. It is grace. Period. And there's nothing you can do about it but believe it. Although, guess what? Turns out in the Bible's way of thinking that even believing it isn't our own doing. It is a gift. It is grace. For faith is a sign. The, 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 the widest sign of the work of the Holy Spirit doing what she does within you. We are saved by grace. Deal with it. Period. Ah, but here's a little theology. We are saved by grace. Deal with it. Period. Period. But not end of story. For he who, beside the waters of the Sea of Galilee and also in the waters of your baptism found his way to you where he named you, claimed you, welcomed you to a relationship of love so perfectly loving it would reach all the way to hell and back to have you in heaven. He, Jesus, every moment of every day, wherever it is you are, doing whatever it is you're doing, he, Jesus, one day at a time, continues to find his way right to where you are, just as he found his way to Peter and Andrew and James and John, right where they were. And finding his way to you like he found his way to them, he says to you every day, Precisely what he said to them that day, he says, follow me. Follow where? Follow to the pathway of your life, lived every day, loving God, loving our neighbor, and doing what you are uniquely God-blessed and gifted to be able to do, to provide and care for the hopes and hurts and needs of God's whole world. Amen.